Welcome to Voice Box, your weekly guide to the art of singing and the best of the vocal music scene from the Bay Area and beyond. You're tuned into KALW and I'm Chloe Veltman. It's fantastic to be here with you tonight. Now, I'm wondering if any of you listeners out there are fluent in Trussian. Yes, you heard correctly, Trussian. If you are, then the following snippet from a Trussian opera about playing volleyball will make perfect sense to you. <laughs> A snippet from an opera about volleyball in the extremely obscure language of Trussian. Because very few of us actually speak Trussian, a little-known blend of Chinese and Russian, the members of the New York improv comedy troupe that staged that um, aria that we just heard had a translator on hand to helpfully explain what the singers were singing about. Here's the translation. I uh, strike a ball so hard, go right through your head. (laughs) Even when the language that an operatic aria or bit of recitative is sung in isn't an obscure or, dare I say it, even entirely made-up language like Trussian, following the lyrics can be challenging. For the longest time, opera companies didn't bother to translate the works they performed on stage. If you didn't know Italian, French or whatever language the composer and librettist wrote in, you just had to muddle along as best as you could. In the 20th century, though, the business of translating operas became increasingly popular. Though many operas are still performed in their original languages, there are often surtitles above or to the side of the stage deciphering the lyrics sung on stage for audiences. And some companies, like the English National Opera in the UK and the Pocket Opera here in San Francisco, specialise in performing operas originally penned in other languages in newer English language versions. On tonight's show, we're going to take a close look at the delicate art of translating operas into English. We'll explore the nuts and bolts of how it's done, what makes it successful, and whether, in fact, it should be done at all. With me in the studio, I'm excited to have with me Donald Pippin and Mary McLaughlin, two people who come at the subject of opera translation from very different fields. Hello, Donald and Mary. Thanks for joining me this (coughs) evening. Pleasure. Hi. Donald Pippin, the founder and director of the Pocket Opera based here in San Francisco, is a prodigious translator of operas. Since 1968, when he translated his first opera, Donald has created around 85 English language translations of well-loved classics and lesser-known gems from the opera canon. Pocket Opera, which Donald founded in 1978, has performed most of them. Over the years, Donald's translations have been used by the Washington Opera at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, the San Francisco Opera Center, the San Diego Opera, the Juilliard School of Music and the Aspen Music Festival, to name a few. And Pocket Opera is in the middle of a run of performances of Massenet's Manon, translated by Donald at the Marines Memorial Theatre. Upcoming productions this season include Cavalleria Rusticana by Mascagni and The Cat That Became a Woman, which is an Offenbach one-act opera, Handel's Aria Dante, The Italian Girl in Algiers by Rossini and Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. 
Now, Mary McLaughlin is an assistant professor French at UC Berkeley who specialises in French linguistics and translation studies. Her first book, Syntactic Borrowing in Contemporary French, a linguistic analysis of news translation, is coming out in just a couple of weeks. In addition to studying translation theory and practice, Mary is also an opera lover. Well, let's kick off with some basics now that we've had (laughs) the lengthy introductions, shall we? So first of all, I'd love to hear from both of you. What's your definition of translation? <laughs> well, first of all, I don't. I usually don't use the word translation because I do think of translation as something that comes as close to the literal meaning of the original as possible. You know, translating every nuance of Chekhov, for example, or, or any of the, of the great prose stylists. But in opera, I don't think you can do that. That there are too many other considerations. That the the words above all have to be singable. The words have to fit the rhythm of the music like a glove on a hand. Well, what I do is go, you know, really absorb the essence of what it's about, what the thought is about. But then I take it pretty much, I translate it, as it were, into my own language. But usually I come out with something that I think comes very close to the original. But it's not literal. It's not line by line by any means. So whether one could call that translation, I don't know. I I keep a switching from <clears throat> what to call it. Uh, in fact, just yesterday I came across a new word, adaptations, which I think really does fit me very well. Ah. But I've used the word settings or versions or interpretations. And Mary, what's your definition of translation, specifically as it relates to opera too, as well as generally? I think I will perhaps annoy my fellow guests tonight by saying that I definitely would classify you as a translator, and I would say that... Oh, you don't annoy me at all. You (laughs) flatter me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I believe very much that you translate, but I think that what you're expressing tonight is something I've come across in the work that I've done recently. Chloe, as you just mentioned, my book is about translation in the press and there the journalists that I interviewed who translate also rejected the notion that they translated even if at times they were really producing very literal translation of the text so I think really the problem isn't uh, in in whether we can use the word translation to describe what you're doing it's the general understanding of what translation is it is a recreation yeah I mean I I have a very sort of flexible sort of working definition that I, I would be that I'm quite happy with working with tonight, which is really revolves around producing a text in the presence of a text in another language. Uh-huh. And I wouldn't really try and say any more than that. And I think, yes, these words like imitation, adaptation, version, are, I think are all useful. Uh-huh. But I, oh, for me, you know, it, I, I would prefer to broaden the definition of translation translation. rather than uh, not use that term. Okay. Okay. So I know, Donald, you know, you founded this opera company, Pocket Opera, which is still Mm -hmm. going alive and strong after many decades. And and you produce the translations for your company. Yes, I do. But um, in the opera world, who is generally responsible for producing translations? There are a variety of different people, right? Uh, There there are. And needless to say, I've not explored that many. The published translations, though, I must say, strike me as very poor. Mm. Though uh, 
they have improved markedly mm-hmm. in the past century. I mean, in the old days, they were just unbelievably florid, incomprehensible, antiquated, uh, just uh, just hopeless. So who was responsible for these? I mean, I feel like today it's mostly, I suppose, dramaturgs do a lot uh, of the translation work. But was it back, back, you know, a long time ago? Was it poets? Was it who was doing uh, this stuff? Were Academics? Not, they were certainly not. <laughs> they certainly would never... Uh, be qualified as poets. <laughs> <laughs> but today the dramaturgs are pretty much mostly in charge, would you say? Or uh, Well, uh, I think you're, you're overestimating the amount of translation is, that is performed in opera. I mean, now, uh, opera in English, opera in translation, seems to be much more accepted in England than it is in this country. Now, almost all the big companies nowadays tend to eschew it altogether and substitute supertitles for it. Right. The question I have for you both at this stage is what forms does translation in opera take? Now, for you, it's something very specific, Donald. You're talking about uh, libretti, you know. um, But, I mean, uh, I think there are some other contexts that we can also, if we're going to have a broader definition, and maybe Mary would be interested in talking about that, there are some some other ways that we do see translations popping up in operas, right? So there's obviously, you know, we have surtitles or supertitles, we have the translation of the libretto. You sometimes get the name of the composer will be translated or transliterated if it's in a different uh, alphabet. I was then thinking about, and this is referencing one of my colleagues, a translation scholar called Lawrence Venuti, who's very concerned about what he calls invisibility and in translation in the West today. So his concern is that trans- the work of translation translators and translations themselves go unnoticed they're ro- not recognized so to publish a successful translation is to publish it as if it were not a translation and so the kinds of uh, or the parts of opera that are translated in this more invisible way is uh, are, are things like the stage directions mm-hmm. or the instructions for the music so as the the, the, the audience is very unaware that this will at some point have been translated, but they are fundamentally affected by how it's been translated. So I think it's also worth sort of paying attention to these other areas. Donald, do you translate stage directions in your libretti? No, I, uh, occasionally I do. But by and large, I don't, uh, I, I go by what's, uh, the, what's already on the, on the score. I see. So I've got a, a, a fundamental question for you. Why do you translate operas, Donald? What drives you to do this? Well, I started out, you know, in a reasonably sized room, about seating about 200. And uh, doing an opera was decidedly an experiment for us, because up to that time we'd done exclusively chamber music. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do this simply as a way of spicing up a chamber music program. Was this in San Francisco? It was in mm-hmm. San Francisco, at a place in North Beach called the Old Spaghetti Factory. Aha, uh-huh. legendary place. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I was there for 19 years, mm-hmm. giving uh, weekly concerts. Okay. So, uh, so at any rate, but in a room this size, it seemed inconceivable to do an opera that was not in the language of the audience, especially a comedy. Mm-hmm. And this, well, the, the opera, in fact, was Bastion and Bastienne by 13-year-old Mozart. Right. But a, an amazingly sophisticated story uh-huh. with a very sly humor. And, uh, and none of this would have come across uh, if they didn't know the language. Well, I did, I did look at several translations, which I thought were you know, just not up to it, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they were stilted, but not, well, just everything wrong. So I thought I would try my hand at it. 
little knowing that it would become a lasting disease (laughs) (laughs) and uh, truly an obsession that has gone on now for over 40 years. (laughs) I I imagine I could be cured by a few weeks of therapy, but nonetheless, I'm still at it. And I, I turn out about two full-length translations every year. And what drives you? What, what, what is it that fascinates you so the much? urge to communicate. Mm-hmm. Opera you know, tends to focus on the, the high moments, the moments of passion. It's a little bit weak on explanation. <laughs> and uh, thank goodness, because explanation, I'm sure, set to music would be very tedious indeed. Uh-huh. But uh, nonetheless, uh, but I think that the, the librettos that I work with have been uh, just uh, miraculously skillful at telling a story with as few words as possible, going from one high point to another as quickly as possible, and yet, you know, binding it all together. Well, at first, uh, I thought this would apply only to comedies. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, after all, humor is something that cannot be explained. It is either spontaneous, it happens immediately, or it doesn't happen at all. So, so my first few opera translations were of comedy, but then I thought, well, you know, we could do the same thing with the serious operas. I mean, after all, they tell their strong story, which will, which will go over the heads of the audience, unless it's in a language that they understand, unless it's a language that resonates, unless you see a real marriage between music and drama, which is what gave birth to opera in the first place. Well, anyway, I, I quickly became convinced that it could be done. You're tuned into Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco. Pining for cold Isolde, young Tristan sighed and suffered. No ray of la hope she offered, either in whole or in part. Help was around the corner. A friendly, wise magician, noting his sad condition, went to his shelves to find. If you've just joined us, welcome. This is Voice Box on KALW. I'm Chloe Veltman. On this evening's show, we're discussing the art of translating operas into English. With me in the studio are Mary McLaughlin, an expert in translation studies from UC Berkeley, and Donald Pippin, the founder and director of Pocket Opera, which specialises in presenting English translations of works from the operatic canon. We just heard Benedetti Queste Carte, an aria from Donizetti's The Elixir of Love. And we had a special treat too, because Donald was doing a simultaneous translation over the top of that. He was, of course, speaking words from his own version uh, of that aria. The recording that we heard underneath his words, however, comes from a Metropolitan Opera production featuring Dawn Upshaw, Kathleen Battle and Luciano Pavarotti. So, Donald, The Elixir of Love is one of the operas you're producing this season. One thing I love about your translations, obviously they're they're, uh, so much full of humour and pathos, but uh, I love the way that they seem so very singable. 
Um, and singability of, is, of course, crucial when it comes to opera translation. Um, it doesn't matter if the translator has created a text that's beautiful and poetic and captures the spirit of the original and tells the story in the most eloquent way if the singer who has to sing the song can't get his or her mouth wrapped around it. So, Donald, how do you go about ensuring that your translations work for singers? Well, <clears throat> I sing them myself. And if I can sing them, anybody can. Okay. <laughs> Right, fine. So if there's an issue with a part of your text which doesn't make itself apparent while you're working on the translation, do you make changes in the rehearsal room too? Yes. Yeah. Well, really, I pour over it many, many, many times yeah. before it goes into print, as it were. And and I'm very much aware of you know of the problems. But nonetheless, during rehearsal sometimes better, you know, better words do crop up. Okay, okay. So beyond the issue of making a translation work for the singer, there are also challenges to do with making the language make sense to the ear of the listener. Let's listen now to the famous Toreador aria from Act Two of Carmen by Georges Bizet. And then Mary will talk us through some issues to do with important little things like stresses and consonant clusters that can make a big difference between an opera being intelligible in English or coming across as a lot of nonsense. First, we'll hear a version in the original French sung by Dmitri Havorotovsky. And then we'll hear a version sung by Gerald Finley in English. <laughs> On tonight's edition of Voicebox here on KLW, we're discussing opera translations with Donald Pippin, a seasoned translator of operas and founder and director of San Francisco's Pocket Opera, and UC Berkeley linguist and translation studies expert, Mary McLaughlin. We just listened to parts of two versions of the famous Toreador aria from Bizet's Carmen. The first was performed in the original French by Dmitri Havorotovsky, and the second in English featuring Gerald Finley. Mary, let's dig into the nuts and bolts of translating operas. What parts of a text should a translator pay particularly close attention to when it comes to transforming opera texts into English? So if we were to try and write some rules for opera translation, which um, a, a, an artistic approach probably would not favour, but if we were going to try and even look at an opera translation and deduce from that what kind of practices are used, you can very clearly see a few linguistic patterns that emerge. So, for example, the Toreador aria is a good illustration here because of the great stress in the word Toreador. Um, and the next line, which in English ends up being dream of a single voice among the roars. So you, you have these two sort of contrasting lines, one with few syllables, strong emphatic stress, and the second line with many unaccentuated syllables. I think that uh, is a, a good illustration, and I think uh, the translation is 
very much bending to fit the musical requirement there. So actually those two lines differ quite substantially from what we have in French. Um, the French is tort et adore, which is obviously kept in translation. Uh, but then the next uh, phrase in French is en garde, which is you know sort of be at the ready, you know, watch out. And I think translated as be ready in that English uh, version we just heard is a bit of a shame. I think it's it loses the strength of the original. The next line in French then is very different. So uh, the French is et songe bien, oui, songe en combattant, which means and sort of think well, literally, but it means you know and remember remember while fighting and that's the line that ends up being dream of a single voice among the roars so i think that's a good illustration of just how free the translation is forced to be there and that's again because of all of these unaccentuated or unstressed uh, syllables that it has to uh, carry over that's very challenging then for for a translator you've translated this opera yes I right have. and uh, and that opening is is tricky right uh, i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there <clears throat> But really, almost everything is tricky. I mean, you know, you really have to chisel. You have to, it's like sculpturing with rather recalcitrant material. <laughs> I quite like that example that we've just listened to because the the line dream of a single voice among the roars is so very far from the French. And if you, if you listen to the French, it carries on. There are two more phrases. So it says, you know, remember, yes, remember while fighting that a black eye is watching you and that love is waiting for you. And in English, it becomes a dream of a single voice among the roars, dream of two flashing eyes, dream that her love is yours. Mm. So we have very free translation in terms of the meaning. I think and I th mine came closer to the original. Well, I don't you know, I may be just fancifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think what's interesting here is that if you look at the French, you have these, uh, it's three syntactically linked clauses. So it's remember that, and then the third line is that. Mm -hmm. Whereas in English, we've got three separate independent clauses. But I think where the translator here, here has been very subtle is uh, using the word dream at the beginning of each line. So he's building back in to the uh, uh, translation, a link that is very natural in the original text. In translation studies, we would call this effect compensation. So basically, because of the musical requirements, he's had to lose the syntactic construction from the original, but has managed to build it in through his choice of words to keep this link between the three lines in the translation. I think, I think that's a really good example of compensation working working well, but not to be overused. The other thing that we could uh, listen out for here, listening to that same excerpt, is a second fairly basic rule. And this applies not just to translating uh, for, for, for music. This applies to setting any words to music, really. And it's the appearance of consonant clusters. So we have a group of consonants all appearing together. It's pretty hard to sing. So something like dream might be OK, a D followed by an R. But if you think of uh, a word like matchstick, Singing <laughs> in the middle uh, is going to be incredibly difficult. So if we just listen once more to that except, you can hear this tendency towards choosing consonant, uh, consonant vowel alterations huh. over and over again. I think most translators would avoid match sticks. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> it's, on the, it's on the red list, on the black list. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Let's hear that little excerpt then from the aria once again so we can hone right in on what Mary's been talking about. Ore ador, ore ador, dream 
tuned into voice box we just heard again a little snippet from Bizet's Carmen which was illustrating what one of my guests tonight Mary McLaughlin uh, was looking at in terms of how translators go about thinking about language the nuts and bolts of it so let's move on now Mary to talking about Puccini and Madame Butterfly uh, you had a very different reaction to uh, the aria from Madame Butterfly one fine day uh, than you had to the Carmen one that we played earlier right yeah, so I think with the Carmen, what we just saw was that there is this awareness of aligning the words to music, but at the same time, the translator is aware of trying to reflect features of the source text, the original libretto in his translation. This aria then is from Madame Butterfly, the Italian Umbeldi, uh, English one fine day will notice. Let's hear now uh, an aria from Puccini's Madame Butterfly. This is one fine day. We just heard a little excerpt from Puccini's Madame Butterfly. That was one fine day, and uh, it was a performance from the Philharmonia Orchestra featuring Cheryl Barker. So, Mary, tell us about this aria. Well, I was quite struck listening to it. Um, I think what we have here is an example, actually, of a fairly problematic translation. In translation studies, we often like to talk about this phenomenon of translation loss. So what is lost in translation? It's a fairly negative approach. Um, you can think about the, uh, the opposite version as translation gain. But here, unfortunately, we have some fairly uh, big clangers. So the very opening line in Italian is un bel di vedremo. So one fine day we will see. And it's translated in English as one fine day we'll notice. So I think sort of what's happened here is this very concrete word of we will see, and she's really trying to explain how strong her faith is, becomes this much weaker verb to oh, notice in okay. English. So it's a sort of weakening of the sense. Then a few lines later, she talks about seeing the ship pulling into the harbour. And in Italian, the phrase is poi la nave bianca. So then the ship white, literally. So then the white ship. This gets translated as then the trim white vessel. Now I think it's very clear that vessel has been used because it's in the same position as Bianca in mm -hmm. Italian, so it's trying to have two syllables. But a trim white vessel seems rather unusual to me. Absolutely unadmissible. Un yeah, you have a look of terror on your face there. Uh, no, no. <laughs> well, so, so you would do things very differently, I oh, think. Absolutely. And how can you remember how you translated? Uh, I, all I remember is the first line. Yeah. That's on the day I dream of. So, Donald, tell me, I mean, do you think in terms of stresses and consonant clusters and very so on? Much, oh, very much so, yes. Yeah. Uh, mm. And above all, in rhythm, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, the strong words have to be on the strong beats. The strong words have to be on the long notes. Well, anyway, uh, I mean, everything, everything is dictated by the music. Okay. At the end of the day, do you think, do both of you think, that music is more important than words? Words more important than music? They have to go hand in hand? Listen, they're married. Which is more important, the man or the woman? <laughs> the woman! <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> You're sitting here with two women. <laughs> Some might differ with you. <laughs> <laughs> On tonight's Voice Box, I'm in the studio with Donald Pippin, a translator of many operas and the founder and director of San Francisco's Pocket Opera Company. And I'm also here with UCB. Berkeley linguist and translation studies expert Mary McLaughlin. We're exploring the theme of translating operas into English. We've been getting into the nuts and bolts of how to translate operas with the help of audio samples from Bizet's Carmen and Puccini's Madame Butterfly. Now, one thing that strikes me when I say the titles of operas is that the, the, the titles themselves can often tell us interesting things about translation strategies. Mary, what can we learn about opera translation from, from the titles? Well, I think it's worth remembering that these are actually translations. They are slightly different from the translations of the libretti because once a translated title becomes accepted, it's hard to give a new title to an opera. So I think there are slightly different uh, strategies and effects that we can see here. So if we take just as an example, if we were to take Wagner's ring cycle, we can illustrate, I think, some of the many tendencies you'll see across the board in translating the titles of works. And this applies actually not just to opera, but to titles of films or books, even paintings, which is an area that I've been thinking about as well. So the title of the uh, ring cycle in German is Der Ring des Nibelungen. So it has this cultural reference, the Nibelungen Lied. Um, in English, it tends to be known. You do get both versions, but people tend to refer to it pretty, pretty much, uh, or pretty frequently as the Ring Cycle. Right. They Im completely get rid of the Nibelungen bit. Now, is that because it, Nibelungen is meaningless in English? <laughs> I think it's hard basically, to say. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think both of those reasons apply. Yeah, it's simply a cultural reference that we're. It's not as meaningful. We're not so familiar with it, and so it gets dropped. In fact, the Ring Cycle. Then you can see translating into. Uh, to use translation metaphorically, into the covers of uh, CDs that you buy or into the posters advertising the productions. There's that very famous production with a huge ring. So it really, the ring absolutely dominates and the Nibelungen as aspect has disappeared. <laughs> so Donald, how do you go about deciding what to title your English versions of operas? Do you always go for the most obvious choice? And I know there are instances like the... Uh, Mascagni opera, the Cavaliere Rusticana, where you're, you're stating seasons uh, where on the website it's given in the Italian. So. Uh, yes. Uh, well, it's so well known in the Italian. Uh, I, w I think that the translation Rustic Chivalry is a very good one, and I would probably use that in parentheses. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, most operas are not problematical. Aida, I think, is rather obvious. Carmen, sure. etc. Et Manon. But uh, the most problematical one that I've come across is Cosi Fan Tutte. Uh -huh. Now, this literally means, thus do all women. Right. Well, I figure, I fiddled around with it a lot, and so I just came up with The Way of Women, okay. which is neat, compact, and it has the same rhythm as the, uh, as as the original the, title. Right. Oh, well, genius solution. Mm. 
So now we're going to hear a couple of musical clips. A clip from Manon, Adieu Notre Petit Table, and then a clip from The Marriage of Figaro, Non Piu Andrai. And once again, Donald is going to uh, read over the top of what we play um, his versions in English of these arias. The, the aria comes after Manon has made a very difficult decision. Uh, she has to choose between love and the prospect of wealth, luxury, pleasure, and so forth and so forth. And she reluctantly decides on the latter. But beforehand, she said, no, no, you know, I'm shallow, unworthy of love. The voice of temptation is leading, leading me on. Me, a toy made of tinsel, flimsy and fragile at best. You know, she really despises herself for, for the choice that she's making. And in the aria, she's making a very sad, poignant goodbye to the life that they've led together. And it's sort of symbolized by their little table, which they sat uh, opposite from So here we go. Goodbye, our pretty little table. Here we snuggled close over wine. Goodbye, our pretty little table. At times, our entire universe. Time to throw off the role of the lover. Play no longer the fair young enchanter. March away from the laughter and banter of the darling, the court cavalier. Feast no more on a diet of dainties. Leave behind masquerades and cotillions. Conversation of sparkle and brilliance as you head for a soldier's career. That uh, Carabino is a young page who is being sent much against his will to join the army and become a soldier. Figaro is reminding him of what he is leaving and also what he is headed for. This is Voice Box on KALW. I'm Chloe Veltman and with me in the studio for tonight's discussion about the art of translating operas into English are Mary McLaughlin, an assistant professor in French and a linguistics and translation studies aficionado at UC Berkeley, and Donald Pippin, a San Francisco-based opera translator and the founder and director of Pocket Opera right here in the city. We just heard two snippets, which uh, we had with Donald simultaneously reading his translations over the top of. The first was Adieu Notre Petit Table, an aria from Massenet's opera Manon, as performed by René Fleming. And that was followed by a sampling from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, featuring Thomas Allen. Donald, Manon and Figaro are also on Pocket Opera's production roster this season. And the arias we just listened to are obviously completely contrasting in character. What's the difference for you in the way that you approach translating a dramatic or tragic uh, aria versus a comic one? <laughs> well, in the comic, in the lighter operas, rhyme is crucial. And so very often 
you know, you find two words that rhyme, and then you find some plausible way of linking them together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I, I scribble a lot. Uh, I throw away a lot. As I think I said to you before, that a translator needs most of all a capacious wastebasket. <laughs> uh, but w- with the serious operas, you know, you really just want to get the, the, emo- the words that go to the core, the words that are emotional, the words that are strong, the words that are telling, uh, and uh, the words that are musical. And so the words that, you know, that really seem to come from the heart. And you use less rhyme, right, oh, with the far, serious far, far, far less. Uh-huh. And why, why that decision? Because, uh, because rhyme is, I mean, rhyme doesn't stand out particularly in Italian, but rhyme hits you over the head in English. And uh, most rhyme is best used for comic effect. Okay. So what's the shelf life of an opera translation? Have there been times when you've decided you needed to completely update a translation for a new production, having originally done a version decades uh, previously? Well, I found that, that the translations that I did for the first 10 years, when I came back to them, I revised them considerably. Oh, okay. But after that, uh, I liked them pretty much the way I did it. Okay, so these ones from the first 10 years, was that, do you put that down to just sort of you were in your early stages of development? Uh, absolutely, as a... exploration. And, you know, uh, and also I, I had to go much faster then. Uh, we had to develop a repertoire. So I had to, I turned out about three or four translations a year. Wow. So, you know, you're really going, well, anyway, it's really pressing it. Now I find two translations a year quite enough. Of course, no translation can exist in a vacuum. Let's talk about some of the cultural issues that translators face. Mary, we were talking earlier this week about the Donizetti opera Mary Stuart and its bias towards Mary in the score and libretto. Can you <laughs> tell us not? about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, for me, this is a very good example of the problem with the argument that we shouldn't translate opera because if you take Mary Stuart or Maria Stuarda, uh, Donizetti's uh, title, This is actually something that took place historically in the UK. It's then turned into a play by the German playwright Schiller and then into a libretto in Italian. So there are layerings, if you like, of voices and texts and and different languages by the time we even get uh, to the final Italian version. What's interesting, or the the sort of challenge for the translator faced with this opera, is the expectation that you would have in the UK. I think it might be a little bit weaker perhaps in, in, in the United States, but Chloe and I both being from Britain, this was a very obvious example for, for us perhaps. We would expect that Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, is the evil one. Yes, mm-hmm. pesky Catholics. Exactly, uh, or not. And what Schiller does, and then arguably what's done even more is paint Mary in a very favorable light. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So that happens first in the German play and it's only increased then in the libretto and then finally also in, in the score. This um, uh, aria is the moment when Mary really finds peace and is accepting her, her death and it's such a sort of beautiful moment in the opera that it really underscores this favorable light in which she's painted versus Elizabeth, who starts to look like the evil executioner. And this sort of thing really is at odds with the expectation of the British public, at least, or the English public, perhaps we should say at this point, 
coming to see Mary Stuart, they, they would not be expecting to see an opera which is going to paint her in a favourable light. So the question is, what do we do? Do we tone down in translation? Do we even accentuate? Do we exaggerate this uh, positive image of Mary? Uh, or should we try to sort of draw the audience's attention away from this slightly mm-hmm. cult- culturally jarring de- depiction? So. I think it's very clear what opera Donizetti wrote. Well, certainly, uh, I mean, his Mary Stuart is a creature of fantasy. But nonetheless, that's what he wrote. That's the opera. So, I mean, I would divorce it from history. Okay. Mm. Well, let's listen now to that aria. Um, We're going to hear, Oh, deign to hear our prayer, merciful saviour, from Donizetti's Mary Stuart. The recording features Angela Bostock with the English National Opera Orchestra and Sir Charles Macarass. This is Voice Box, and that was Oh, Deign to Hear Our Prayer, Merciful Saviour, from Donizetti's Mary Stuart. The recording featured Angela Bostock with the English National Opera Orchestra and Sir Charles Macarass. With me in the studio for tonight's conversation about opera translation are Donald Pippin, a San Francisco-based opera translator and the founder and director of Pocket Opera here in San Francisco, and Mary McLaughlin, an assistant professor in French and an expert in linguistics and translation studies at UC Berkeley. Donald, how do you go about developing skills as a translator of opera? (laughs) By doing it. Doing it it (laughs) over many, many decades. Yes, absolutely. Do you think that they that translators should have as much of an authorship credit as the original librettists? I'll jump in and say absolutely <laughs> yes. And, but they're hardly known. I mean, you know, people know. who translate operas, you hardly hear their names at all, right? Uh, yes, I think this is true. It's all too often that you'll see uh, opera houses will forget to even credit the translator. That's disgraceful. Yeah, so I think this is a wider cultural problem. Um, and I think... In those instances where the translator does stand out and becomes mm. visible, if you like, that's when we have really good translations. So when you become an artist yourself, and I think you know that that that's what's happening here. These great translations that we've been hearing about the the jungle passion and the diet of dainties. You know, I, I noticed the translation. I noticed the words in a good way, and I think that's that's how we're going to end up getting more recognition mm. for translators. So, given that there are still many opera buffs out there who believe that operas should only be experienced in their original languages and perhaps even without the aid of distracting uh-huh. surtitles, let me ask you both this question. Why translate operas at all? <laughs> well, I've already given my answer to communicate. Okay. That, uh, <clears throat> that this is cer- certainly something that the composers were all for. And in fact, Verdi insisted that his operas be performed in the language of the country that they were performed in, as surprisingly left did Wagner. Mm. And Puccini. And Puccini. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so to to the composers, the text was vital. 
and uh, and it will not be vital unless there are words that resonate with the public, unless there are words in a language that they feel comfortable with, that pertains to their own feelings, pertains to their own lives. Anything you'd like to add to that, Mary? I think I probably don't have one single uh, answer because I think... I think that I wouldn't say I always think opera should be translated and I also wouldn't say I think it should never be translated. I think it really depends on the purpose of the uh, the text. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of the text here would often be the performance. So for example, if the if we're going to have an opera at Garsington, say in, in, in the UK, you know, maybe there we could expect an audience that is able to follow the original Italian. On the other hand, if the opera is in Czech, are people really worried when we translate into English? I mean, I think part of this question is just a cultural uh, or a reflection of our, our cultural history and the dominance of Italian culture since the Renaissance. We sort of assume that people should be able to understand the Italian, but no one complains really if we try and translate uh, for example, Russian, right? <laughs> Russian. That would be that would be acceptable. So I think this this really well, you know, actually, most of the big companies nowadays do insist that Russian operas be performed in Russian. Yeah. Czech operas in Czech. Yeah. And what they're trading for is a particular color, a particular flavor, at the expense of communication, mm-hmm. at the expense of meaning, at the expense of, of you know, of substance. So, Donald, you've got one opera this season, Aria Dante by Handel, which your company, a company that usually sings in English, is performing in its original Italian. Well, now, got, what's that go, about? I was going to bring this up myself. <clears throat> I mean, with Handel, I've made it the, a big exception. <clears throat> We've done 15 Handel operas, and these I have not translated. Uh, uh, I could go into the reasons, but the, the arias are not dramatic. Uh, they are generally consist of two or three phrases repeated over and over again. And uh, there, I think that the loss, I mean, Italian, there's no question about it, is more mellifluous than English. Now, English does have its mellifluous words, but they're all for the wrong things, like oleomargarine or wall-to-wall carpeting, <laughs> uh, which are just not very useful <laughs> for the translator. But but I, I hate to, you know, I really don't like to tamper with the Italian of, of Handel. And also, in these operas, I get a chance to stand up and tell the story as we go along, so people do know what the substance of each aria is about. Okay. Well, we're coming up to the end of this week's show. I'm really sad to say it's such a rich topic and I feel that we've barely skimmed the surface, but there you go. Um, Before we sign off, though, I'd be curious to hear what you both think lies ahead for the field of opera translation. Do you think that more companies will start to produce operas in English in the future? What's the future of sir titles, super titles? And and are there any new innovations in the field that you'd like to talk about? (laughs) That's the dream of my life. More, more opera companies doing opera in English. Whether this dream will be realized, heaven only knows. <laughs> Mary? I think it's very poignant that you ask this question here in San Francisco because we're sitting next to Silicon Valley and I think we need to look there to see what the innovation is going to be in the future. I mean, now there are apps for your iPhone where you can hold it up and the camera will take a picture of a sign and it will automatically translate it into another language. Now, at the moment, those are pretty bad translations and uh, I think we can hope in the future that it might get better. So I think... You know, we've only had sub surtitles since 1983. Mm-hmm. It's a very short history, and I can imagine this is only going to keep changing. 
Well, thank you, Donald and Mary, for being here tonight and sharing your brilliant insights into the art of opera translation. It's been so wonderful chatting with you both. It's been a pleasure, Chloe. Thank you, Chloe. To find out more about Pocket Opera, including how to purchase tickets to see productions in its current season, please visit pocketopera.org. And as I mentioned earlier, Mary's new book, Syntactic Borrowing in Contemporary French, a Linguistic Analysis of News Translation, is coming out very soon. For more information about Mary, please visit her website at marymclaughlin.com. And you can also find out more about her on the UC Berkeley French Department website. Voicebox is produced at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim, and the membership and development director is John Bischoff. Voicebox can only exist with support from you, our listeners. To find out how you can become more involved with the project, including how to make a tax-deductible donation to keep us going, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. And did you know that Voicebox is now available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org? And if you live in the Bay Area, you can find out all about what's going on on the local vocal music scene by checking out our weekly online events listings. Oh, and please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can also write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. On next week's show, we'll be looking at the career and voice of the late American mezzo-soprano Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson. Hunt-Lieberson, who had strong ties to the Bay Area, collaborated with the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra many times. Join Nicholas McGeegan, the director of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, and me, Chloe Veltman, for a profile of this unforgettable vocalist. We'll be here next Friday at 91.7 FM from 10 till 11 p.m. I'd like to play us out with the lovely soprano Danielle Denise performing Il Mio Crudel Martoro, The Grief and Pain I Suffer, an aria from Handel's Ariadante. Ariadante is an Italian opera premiered in England by a German composer and set in Scotland. And Donald Pippin's Pocket Opera Company's version, atypically for an organisation that specialises in performing English language versions, is doing the work in Italian. What a multicultural world we live in. Have a songful week. <laughs> Thank you.